You're listening to the Verso Podcast. You're listening to the Verso Podcast in collaboration with the London Review Bookshop for a special International Women's Day edition with Kate Evans, the creator of Red Rosa. Listen on for your chance to win a goodie bag containing a copy of Red Rosa, the letters of Rosa Luxemburg, and a limited edition Verso tote bag featuring Red Rosa herself. And we have one right here, and I can tell you it is amazing. It will really encourage people to sit next to you on the tube. Um, And it seems particularly appropriate that we're talking about Rosa Luxemburg for International Women's Day, partially because there is a tradition, particularly in Eastern Europe, of giving flowers to women on International Women's Day. But we're here to really reclaim the political history of what was first known as International Working Women's Day. And in fact, it was Rosa's comrade and correspondent, Clara Zetkin, who was at the heart of the adoption of International Working Women's Day by the Second International in 1910. The previous year, the first International Working Women's Day had been held in New York, organised by the Socialist Party of America in remembrance of the 1908 strike of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And the following year, at the International Women's Conference held before the general meeting of the Second International, Zetkin seconded the international adoption of the day, and in 1911 it was marked across Europe as well as in the US. The day was initially bound up with the struggle for women's suffrage, particularly in the UK, as well as with workplace discrimination. In 1917, women in St. Petersburg took it a step further when they went on strike on International Women's Day with the slogan, Bread and Peace. Leon Trotsky wrote that, quote, We did not imagine that this Women's Day would inaugurate the revolution. Revolutionary actions were foreseen but without date. But in the morning, despite the orders to the contrary, textile workers left their work in several factories and sent delegates to ask for support of the strike, which led to the mass strike. All went out into the streets. After the revolution, the day was made an official holiday celebrating the liberation of Soviet women in the USSR and later across the socialist world. It took until 1977 for the USA and the West to catch up, when the UN proclaimed 8th of March the UN Day for Women's Rights and World Peace. In Macedonia, Madagascar and Nepal, it's a national holiday for women only, and in Pakistan in particular, it retains its association with women's labour rights. It's this connection to the struggles against capital that make the day so fitting to Mark Rosa Luxemburg, who, as we'll hear from Kate Evans, may not have been a feminist in the vein of Clara Zetkin, but would have supported International Working Women's Day as an uprising of women in the streets demanding change. Kate Evans describes herself as a cartoonist, artist, activist, author and mother. Red Rosa is her most recent book project, but she's also the creator of Bump Book, a pick-your-own-adventure manual for womanhood, and also Funny Weather, an imaginative and urgent introduction to climate change, which has been translated around the world. Her work binds together the personal and political, the big picture and the small detail, all with a clarity and a sense of immediacy. My name's Sophie Mayer, and I'm the author of Political Animals, the New Feminist Cinema. My work is concerned with the relationship between feminism and visual culture, with how political movements get translated into the movements of artists' bodies and the bodies they represent. So I'm delighted to be here with Kate today to talk about a book that translates the political movement of socialism into a graphic novel that is full of movement on the page. Um, And I'm going to start by asking Kate just to tell us a bit about Rosa Luxemburg, who she was, and how did you get involved in keeping alive her idea? Can I talk about International Women's Day first? 
Yeah, of course. It's in the book on page 135. If you flick to that copy of Red Rosa, I've got the September, the, sorry, the February Revolution in Russia, where there's a crowd of garment workers coming out of the strikes. It's one that looks like this, and um, and then the the crowd is there. It's predominantly a female crowd, and there were the children there as well. And then, of course, troops were sent to fire upon the crowd. And it's the fact that it was a predominantly female crowd is partly why it then instigated the revolution, because the troops were reluctant to fire upon them because they were firing on women. And from contemporary eyewitness accounts, the women were baring their breasts and showing their sort of, you can see a little bit of cleavage happening to the left of the the strip there. So the soldiers pointing the gun at the woman and she's tearing open her dress and saying, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. And they don't. So that is partly the revolutionary potential of an all-female action against an all-male crowd of troops. And I just want to add that this is represented as a film strip. So drawing on the history of Soviet cinema and its depiction of the revolution to give the sense of the rapid movement of events, um, the book as a whole deals with a very complicated life and you had to make choices. Tell me about it. <laughs> You had to make choices about what you showed and how you showed, and every page represents a different approach to that challenge. And we're going to talk a bit about a couple of pages when we come to the, when we come to the towards the end. But for now, maybe you could say a bit about how Rosa was connected to what was happening well, in this, Russia. At this point, Rosa's purely a spectator on events, which was partly why I used the film strip. I think she's stuck in in the Ronka prison in 1917. She's been indefinitely imprisoned for opposing the First World War, and she's says i'm ready at my post all times and at the first opportunity we'll begin striking the keys of world history's piano with all 10 fingers so that it will really boom but right now i happen to be on leave from world history not through any fault of my own so i wanted to take that quote and then just show just how much world history was happening just in the single year of 1917 which is then pivotal for events in russia and subsequent events in germany so i used the film strip to talk about um, the First World War, about the, Sef- the February Revolution, about industrial unrest, about mutinies, and then about the October Revolution by and uh, the sort of the formation of Soviet Russia. But there were moments before she was in prison when Rosa had really been at the heart of international events. She'd been present for the first international, and her life sort of tracks through the events of the of the early 20th century in some ways. Second international. Second international. <laughs> the socialists <laughs> one, will get one you. One of the internationals. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, socialists. Yeah, I mean, the, the significance of the international socialist movement when the First World War comes along is to do with the fact that socialists are bound to support each other and to oppose war and to oppose anything that's against the interests of working people, which war blatantly is because they're the cannon fodder. Rosa Luxemburg was at the 1907 Stuttgart meeting of the International and she helped to draft a resolution which says it's the duty of the working classes and the parliamentary representatives to do everything to prevent the outbreak of war. So given that the Socialist Party was at this point in Germany the largest party in the Reichstag, they had a really strong platform from which they could have opposed the outbreak of the First World War on the grounds that it's not the interests of working people. And instead, they crumbled spectacularly. They massively capitulated. And Karl Liebknecht was the only Reichstag representative who stood up against the war. Um, So, yeah, Rosa Luxemburg's significance as somebody who recognised the First World War as being a capitalist, expansionist, imperialist war crime was um, 
was was really really pivotal to events and how did she get to that point she was born into a relatively bourgeois family in poland she was educated um alongside her brothers how, how did she become this extraordinary figure who fought first of all to educate herself and then to educate and liberate others along with her she was really really clever and really single-minded she just did things she didn't seem to mind whether she was allowed to do them or not she just did them she wasn't in a very good position she was polish she was a refugee because she was a socialist she was expelled from tsarist russia and poland and she ended up living in germany because there was some ability to practice socialism and socialist theory in germany um she was jewish obviously going to be a problem um and she just sort of didn't care about any of this stuff she just did things I mean she was lucky in some ways I think a lot of women in her position would have been forced into marriage and it would have been expected that they would have got married she was the youngest daughter it would also would have been expected that she would have looked after her elderly parents in fact the oldest daughter in the family didn't get married and she had this sort of disabling hip complaint which I think kind of rendered her unmarriageable so she just didn't bother with any of that being a woman thing and just decided she was a bloke as far as I can tell. <laughs> She's not actually that sympathetic to the struggles of other women because I think she doesn't engage with her own oppression and therefore doesn't really engage with how it affects others either. So what did she and Clara Zetkin talk about? What were, what were their points in common? How did they get to know one another? Apart from the fact that she had a massive affair with Clara Zetkin's son. Um, Apart from that. I kind of think they probably didn't discuss that in too much detail. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. It's hard to tell how friend, what friendships are really like. I mean, I've arrived at a fictionalised representation of factual events in the book. And so I dramatise conversations between Rosa and other people. But in fact, I just have Rosa's letters to go from a lot of the time. So I'm really only giving a one-sided sort of taste of Rosa's personality. But I do use her words wherever possible. But what I'm missing is the letters back from Clara Zetkin back to Rosa Luxemburg. So I can't really give a properly rounded um, figure, a, um, a properly rounded representation of that. But um, she does certainly really value female friendship, as any independent woman would. And there's some lovely quotes where she's writing to Louise Kautsky and saying, Life is making my fingers tingle. With you, I'm ready for any foolishness. You always put me in a champagne mood. So I like getting those little quotes out and showing them being silly and 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 enjoying female comradeship. Because obviously that's what's missing from so much of culture, given how little of what we watch ever passes the Bechdel test. Indeed. There's a really one of my favourite moments in the book where Rosa is uh, walking down the street with two female friends and they're enacting the witch's speech from Macbeth uh, <laughs> in contrast to the the arguments of the, the socialist men. This sort oh, of yeah, those, those, arguments. Are, those are real quotes. Um, there's a there's a correspondence page. between Victor Adler and Algus Babel where um, Victor Adler says she's a, a poisonous bitch. Um there's some correspondence between Victor Adler and August Babel where, where Victor Adler says, the poisonous bitch will yet do a lot of damage. She's as clever as a monkey, yet her sense of responsibility is totally lacking. And August Babel says, once a woman's passions or vanities come into question, 
then even the most intelligent of them flies off the handle and becomes hostile to the point of absurdity. Now, August Babel wrote Women in Socialism. It's an early feminist tract. The fact that these were his personal views when people like Rosa Luxemburg and Clara Zetkin are actually emancipated women in his presence. It really shows the depth of the hostility which she would have encountered and just blithely ignored. So even having reached out from the circumstance of her birth as a Polish Jew, come to Berlin, found her home in the socialist movement, she then found these other conversations going on. But you think she just powered through them and carried on. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting ways of seeing the the depth of the hostility which she would have encountered is if you read the anti-critique to the accumulation of capital, which is quite an accessible document. And I recommend you read it before you read the accumulation of capital. In it, she simply looks at what everybody else has said about the accumulation of capital, which is her masterwork and a really complex and interesting piece of economic thinking. And she looks at the ways in which it's been shot down in flames by all these different prominent social writers, socialist writers from all these prominent socialist publications all the way across Germany. And she points out that they don't even make sense in each other's terms. And she also name checks one particularly hostile critic when if you read back through her letters, he doesn't like her because he wanted a relationship with her and she spurned him. So who exactly is the person who, after his passions or vanities come into question, flies off to ha- the handle and becomes hostile to the point of absurdity in that situation? Well, it's really about <laughs> ethics and games journalism, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I never thought of this as Gamergate of its time. <laughs> Socialist gate. <laughs> But one of the things that I absolutely love about the book is the way that it renews a slogan of the international women's movement that has become a bit hackneyed, which is the personal is political, which is too often taken to mean navel gazing is a political act rather than drawing from our own personal experience collectively into thinking about our community and then acting from that is political. So the representation of Rosa as a friend, as a lover, as a daughter, as someone who had immense appetite for life is part of what spurs her political passions. At one point they unravel like a quilt, which is this amazing metaphor for the the way that she refused to just be a sort of brain in a jar. She was a body, you know, like Emma Goldman's favourite famous statement about it's not my revolution if I can't dance. I feel that spirit in Rosa as well. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, um, you're talking about my, my gratuitous sex scene that I shoehorned into my representation of the 1905 revolution there, The totally you? ungratuitous sex scene, which is a metaphor for revolution and very sexy in and of itself. Well, I had to get a last shag in between Rosa Luxemburg and Leah Yorgish's before she spectacularly dumped him five pages later. Um, but um, yeah... <laughs> the mass strike, a bit of pulsating life of flesh and blood, which is connected with all parts of the revolution with a thousand veins. I got a bit sort of, <laughs> yeah, I went a bit metaphorical there. Um... <laughs> yeah, no, she is a person. And that's always the way that I want to... I've never done a graphic biography before. And i very clearly wanted to start it with her birth as a baby, her as a baby, and then finish it with her death in the water of the Landfair Canal. And I wanted to show all parts of her human existence. So she's got hairy legs and armpits and she brushes her hair. And I mean, 
It's a shame because I had, I was so constrained for space. It's 180 pages, this book. I was only paid for 120 of them. <laughs> so it was already half as long again as it should have been. But I really wanted to get into the detail of historical existence, you know. Um, but yeah, I started with, a ba- with her as a baby because once she would have been a baby... And I've got her father holding her up going, this girl will be one to watch. There's fire in her soul, I tell you. (laughs) So in a way, I sort of, I I extrapolate from the historical facts that are known about her and I flesh them out. But it's not difficult to do with Rosa because we have her letters and we can tell that she really was a vibrant and witty, hilarious person. You can have her, you can just take it from life. She turns around to August Babel, who's rushed out. So... Rosa Luxemburg and, and Clara Tetkin are um, they're, they're late back from a walk and August Babel, leader of the German socialists, rushes out and says, oh, it's late, we feared you were lost. And she goes, right, you can write our epitaph. Here are the last two men of German social democracy. <laughs> you just imagine <laughs> how well that comment would have been received. I mean, it is a shame that she's cou- couching her insult in sexist terms in its own way, but... She was pretty damn sharp. She would have been pretty good on Twitter. Yeah, no, you see, it's fascinating to imagine what she would have made of modern social media. Rosa Luxemburg was working at a time when it was very, very hard to disseminate ideas. But if you did set up a printing press, uh, just a single newspaper had incredible power. It was so concentrated into that tiny piece of scrap of, of printed paper. And when you look through the letters of Rosa Luxemburg, Verso's edition of them, uh, there's a, there's a list of all the people that she's writing letters to in the back, and all the way through it goes so such and such a bloke occupation typesetter such and such a bloke occupation typesetter they all works in printing presses because they had to physically print the work themselves to get the ideas out there, so. Nowadays, it's so much more distributed, everything, all of the, the means that we have to communicate with each other. Yeah, she would have loved Twitter, and, and but I don't know if her message wouldn't have been diluted in the modern time, whereas then she was singular. She was a singular point of resistance and of creativity. So they were really like the tech startups of their day in a way. They were setting up these printing presses, disseminating their information, taking advantage of new technologies. And standing outside in the blistering cold, making four-hour speeches while everybody stood in silence listening to them. Not something that we do anymore. Don't have the attention span for that anymore. (laughs) For Rosa Luxemburg and Clara Zetkin, women's emancipation could only happen under socialism. In 1912, Rosa gave a speech about women's suffrage and class struggle at the second Social Democratic Women's Rally in Stuttgart, Germany. Women's suffrage is the goal, but the mass movement to bring it about is not a job for women alone, but is a common class concern for women and men of the proletariat. Germany's present lack of rights for women is only one link in the chain of the reaction that shackles the people's lives, and it is closely connected with the other pillar of the reaction, the monarchy. Both monarchy and women's lack of rights have been uprooted by the development of modern capitalism, have become ridiculous caricatures. They continue to exist in our modern society not just because people forgot to abolish them, not just because of the persistence and inertia of circumstances. No, they still exist because both, monarchy as well as women without rights, have become powerful tools of interests inimical to the people. 
The worst and most brutal advocates of the exploitation and enslavement of the proletariat are entrenched behind throne and altar as well as behind the political enslavement of women. Monarchy and women's lack of rights have become the most important tools of the ruling capitalist class. In truth, our state is interested in keeping the vote from working women and from them alone. It rightly fears they will threaten the traditional institutions of class rule. Women's suffrage is a horror and abomination for the present capitalist state, because behind it stand millions of women who would strengthen the enemy within. I mean revolutionary social democracy. If it were a matter of bourgeois ladies voting, the capitalist state could expect nothing but effective support for the reaction. The women of the property-owning classes will always fanatically defend the exploitation and enslavement of the working people by which they indirectly receive the means for their socially useless existence. The proletarian woman's lack of political rights is a vile injustice. However, social democracy does not use the argument of injustice. This is the basic difference between us and the earlier sentimental utopian socialism. We do not depend on the justice of the ruling classes, but solely on the revolutionary power of the working masses and on the course of social development which prepares the ground for this power. Thus injustice by itself is certainly not an argument with which to overthrow reactionary institutions. If, however, there is a feeling of injustice in large segments of society, says Friedrich Engels, it is always a sure sign that the economic bases of the society have shifted considerably, that the present conditions contradict the march of development. The present forceful movement of millions of proletarian women who consider their lack of political rights a crying wrong is such an infallible sign, a sign that the social bases of the reigning system are rotten and that its days are numbered. One of the other great things about the graphic novel is that we see her at work. We see these technologies. We see her writing and editing. Oh, yeah. I went to the Deutsche Museum of Technology and went and found printing presses and drew pictures from printing presses with, you know, every stage of the process just to get it in there on one of the pages, just to show the physicality of what it was that she had to do. And the fact this is about labour and labour politics. So the labour is right there on the page, as well as your labour, Kate. Yeah, as well as the fact that she majorly had servants. It was really quite snidey in real life. But there we go. I do go into that in the book. That's actually an interesting... From a feminist analysis of Rosa Luxemburg, from a third-wave feminist analysis, we can see... I, I can see how the various disabilities that... Uh, sort of, the very is it oppressions that she suffered they sort of intersect the fact that she was disabled actually made it easier for her to reject the destiny of being a wife and mother which would have been expected from her but the fact that she's a woman and she's an academic and she's on her own means that she distances herself quite markedly from the working classes and I believe it's a protection strategy there's some very interesting letters that she writes when she's trying to find a house in Berlin, or, or trying to find an apartment when she first moves there. And she writes going, I couldn't possibly take this place. There were, there were men in soldiers' uniforms with a woman on their arm in the stairwell. And the other one was open to the courtyard. Anyone could have come in. But then she couldn't take a third place because they all visitors would have to report to the doorman. That wouldn't work either because she's going to be visited by dodgy radicals who need to be able to see her without being reported to the secret police. So she's very hard for her to find somewhere to physically be where she's safe. And one of the ways in which she makes herself safe is to come across as posh as she possibly can because then it's not assumed that she's a prostitute because that's the only other way a woman could be on her own. 
So a version of respectability politics that she has to aspire to this middle class appearance and academic blue stocking appearance. But then there's when she goes to Silesia, she's very able to connect with Mm. the working class men that she's there to speak to. It's not this stereotype of the, the blue stocking radical yeah. feminists you can't connect uh, they say they people. say they, they said to her we thought you'd be old and fat we're not at all what you thought you'd be like which of course are ageist and <laughs> <laughs> but then she's that's because she's just a very vivacious and exciting and, and direct person so i think she could connect with people in lots of different ways she was certainly she was just one of those little firebrands that go through life really and as well as the her letters, which obviously give you a connection to her feelings and her thinking. Were there any images that you had of Rosa Luxemburg to give you a start on how I had you be- all the images of Rosa Luxemburg. I had all the pictures of Rosa Luxemburg all the way around my studio, living with me constantly for about a year and a half, which meant she was sort of looking down at me all the time, which was interesting when I was drawing the sex scenes because I was like, would she even approve of this? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It felt a bit personal. It was good that she'd been dead so long because she was a real person and it is sort of an intrusion if you think about it. Um, She's beautiful as well. She's got a really striking look. She's got a very long nose and velvet almond eyes, they were described as by a member of the Reichstag. And she's got this shock of black hair. She's only about four foot ten. And and she wears her hair up most of the time in distinctive kind of... um, 1905 style which I use on the front of the book cover of the book yeah so she was very striking and I I used a black pen throughout for her hair to make these solid patches of black to be a sort of a visual reference point all the way through and then I made her cat white to be a sort of counterpoint to that it's a terrific hat as yes. well. Spin off. Yeah, no, there could have been a whole book of Mimi the cat. She's got lovely descriptions of Mimi. Sort of the, describes it in her letters the time when she was frantically looking all around the um, apartment for Mimi and couldn't find her, and then she found her in bed under the covers with with a blanket drawn up under her chin. She she totally uses Mimi as a child substitute and refers to herself as Mimi's mother. I think it's a quite straightforward. <laughs> Definitely, but volume two. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the book is in black and white with the very solid black of Rosa's hair and then a lot of grey tones sort of ink and wash. Yeah, well, everything was in black and white up until the 1930s, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a, an amazing um, bit where Han Sachs writing in close-up, the film journal, says that colour cinema is an aberration because people dream in black and white. That's not true. He just dreams in black and white. He's watched too many old films. <laughs> he was writing in 1928, so mm. maybe at that point people did dream in, in black and white. But it certainly does evoke newspapers of the earlier 20th century woodcuts and early photography. Mm. Um, but there's also a very particular art style that you've adopted for drawing the people. It's not the regular style that we might expect, either in superhero comics or in art graphic novels. You mean it's not manga and it's not superheroes? Yeah, it's people, isn't it? People heroes. I I think that a lot of um, cartoonists caricature out a lot of the um, of a lot of the possibility of human expression. I spent a long time when I was doing the roughs 
I come to a page which has uh, six panels in. They're all talking heads because most of it's condensed conversations between Rosa and somewhere else, trying to expedite a bit of, of political of political point. And I draw it quite a few times. I draw her expression and her hands, and then I rub it out and I sort of move her hands a bit and see how the interplay between her face and her hands and her body would change the way that what she was saying comes across. So I spent quite a long time being quite particular in the expressions that people have. And it's like I was a movie director with absolute control over every aspect of my actors, which is great, except it does take a long time. But you don't have to deal with real human actors. No, it's great. I don't have to deal with anybody else at all when writing a book. It's a lot of fun. Um, To conclude the podcast, I thought we could have a look at a couple of particularly distinctive page spreads. Graphic novels are not really a form for radio. So we're going to try and give you the sense of looking at the pages. What you need to do, of course, is head to the London Review Bookshop and pick up a copy of Red Rosa, where it's available as part of a month-long promotion on female graphic novelists. So, Kate, you want to talk about page 157 and 164. Yeah, this is a the defining moment of the Spartacist Revolution, which is an uprising on Sunday, the 5th of January, 1919. And I've got a page here where I'm basically trying to do slightly too much, which is characteristic of quite a lot of the book. So at the top, we have my two least favourite things to draw. Well, three least favourite things, which is buildings and crowd scenes of people wearing hats, which just takes ages. I'm not very good at drawing, but by this point in the book, I am very good at drawing buildings. But... um I don't actually like drawing buildings. Um, so by this point, I've developed a kind of a roughish pencil style that gives a shape of the Berlin architecture. And then I also, when looking at the photographs of the Spartacus Uprising, it's all happening in the depths of winter. And there's all these contemporary snapshots of what's going on. This is just at the cutting edge of where documentary photography is starting to be a thing because it's the 19... It's only since 1912 that with the invention of the Kodak pocket vest camera that people have been able to take photos without people having to hold a pose. So we've got these snapshots and they've all got this wintry air with these bare bones trees in them. So I use trees, these these stark images of trees throughout these pages to try and reenact the feeling of those photos. Also, you'll notice I've put big slogans and a massive red flag in the middle of this so that I don't have to draw too many people in the crowd scene because I'm really bored of drawing crowd scenes by this point in the book. And I should add that everyone at the front of the crowd scene, all the men have different hats. Yeah, because you've got uh, civilians, you've got sailors, you've got soldiers, you've got to show that this is coming from all different strata of society. And that's very obvious in the contemporary photos of the armed revolutionaries that they come from across the military and civilian spectrum. So the crowd rushes to the Forfoots building and I have to draw a picture of the Forfoots building and it's quite hard to do because I didn't have a photo of the Forfoot buildings until after it had been shelled massively <laughs> by the Fry Court when taking it back, which is what we're coming to on the next page. So I had to do a sort of historical uh, sort of archaeology looking at very closely at the fragments of the brickwork and recreating the shape of the building as it would have been before it had been massively bombed. Wow. Um, So they've taken the building at this point. I'm going to skip straight to page 164 where um, you can see what happens next, which is done from... So here I've got the building again and it has been bombed, but I've added some 
broken glass and some and some flames coming out of the windows. I mean, this is historically sourced to the fact that there's a window frame on the pavement outside, and that is there's a photograph of the window frame on the pavement outside, so I've put it in, you know. Um, and I've used contemporary um, weapons that were used against the Spartacists, including a British tank and um, the artillery. That were it's photo- There are contemporary photographs of the artillery as well. They wouldn't have been ranged directly outside the building necessarily. You have to kind of arrange things to get it into a photo. Now, what I have here is um, it's dawn um, is when it starts. And uh, I, I placed a grey wash filter over the whole of this page, which graduates from the second frame down to the bottom um and then i worked into that with a white pen to create highlights of the dawn light as it was coming in and then i worked into it again to add shadows we have contemporary accounts of what happened at the point where the forfeits building fell um an, an initial group of six people including a poet went out with white flags to surrender they were taken prisoner what actually happens in real life is they're taken prisoner Everyone for the building is taken off to the barracks and they find the dismembered bodies of the people who went ahead with that peace mission um, in in the foreground of the barracks with people laughing over them. I don't have enough space there to show everything that happens in that way. So instead I have these first people gunned down outside the building and everyone else taken away. And they were actually taken to a barracks. And when you read the historical notes at the back of the book from the eyewitness report, you will find out that that's what happened but I put them all in a in a woodland just to show that it's a very different place from the building that they've been taken somewhere else and lined up and stood in front of the machine guns now the eyewitness report is from someone who would have been in in the front row here who was waiting and waiting to be shot stood in front of machine guns and in the end they weren't shot but they said that what he said that what happened was the commander was had phoned Noska, the socialist um, minister of defence, and said um, minister of the interior, I think, and said, um, "Give us written authorization to shoot all these rebellious uprising people." And he went, "No, I'm not giving you written authorization, but shoot them anyway." And they didn't because they didn't have written authorization. Quite a lot of things do and don't happen in the German Revolution because people haven't got written authorization. It's quite amusing only in Germany. So I've drawn out the drama of that. I have Noskra on the phone saying, go ahead and shoot them. No, we'll not give you written authorization. Just go ahead and do it. And then he puts the phone down and gives a quote, which he, he's alleged to have said, you play with matches, you get burned. Quite a baddie. Mm. it's fun making baddies and he does he does look like a baddie yeah, his glasses I made him, really hide his eyes yeah I made him look like a baddie by not giving him any pupils in his eyes and making him look very hollow cheeked and gaunt you can make anyone into a baddie if you try hard enough one of the things that's so beautiful about this page is that above the Noska conversation which happens in the bottom two panels through the panels about the Spartacists leaving the Vorwitz building there's only one word dawn which is a word that we traditionally associate with hope. Rosa is also very inspired by nature. A lot of her thinking about freedom is very connected to nature. So you'd think the word dawn would reflect a sort of cultural moment of hope. But instead, it's the the one word that describes this terrible confrontation, which is represented without words and very balletically, just the confrontation between walls of bodies holding poses. So it's very striking in comparison to 
the forward motion that then happens through dialogue towards really the end of Rosa's life. She's now really in the trap. Yeah, she is. Everything's closing in on her. And you mentioned the um, the her being with her friends, quoting the witches from Macbeth. I've no evidence that she quoted the witches from Macbeth with her friends. I just did it because there was three of them and it would be fun. But also, so I had the opportunity to have her confronting her own mortality and quoting the words, um, when shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning or in rain, when the hurly-burly's done? when the battle's lost and won. And that echoes the last words that she wrote because she wrote a very famous, um, a very um, very defiant last words the night before she was murdered. She'd written an article for De Rotofana and she, um, she says, victory will be born out of this defeat. She said, you may think it's a defeat, but victory will come out of it. So it was very much the sense, the battle's lost and won. And that was the way that she felt about it. Although history didn't necessarily prove that to be true. I, I've got to admire her optimism. So I've got some slight... The thing is, Rosa wasn't actually in those pages. <laughs> I just wanted to do them because they're ones which have got a lot of historical influences coming together in one place. But instead, I just want to go to a much simpler phrase, which is her... She writes some incredibly inspiring and beautiful descriptions from prison in the Ronca Fortress when she's been indefinite, indefinitely um, imprisoned for, for opposing the war. And indefinite imprisonment is very difficult to deal with. So you would expect that she'd be quite like depressed at this point, but she's not. She's very, very poetic and very in inspiring in these letters. They're quite famous in Vermont's German-speaking people and deserve to be re read in, all around the world. So... I wanted to show, just in the format of the pages, that she's escaping the prison walls somehow. So I've designed these. I spent a whole day on these six pages, of which you're viewing two here, just working out where the page, where the frame breaks go, um, which I've never done before. I've never spent a day working out where frame breaks go. <laughs> but at this point, the frame breaks are starting to show like slanting rays of the sunlight coming through from the corner of the page. So it's really set free from the square yeah. usual frame break, which you gets associated with the prison cell. Yeah, rather than it being vertical up and down lines, it's starting to break sideways and, and sort, of, sort of move across the page up into the sky. So she's saying, Hainshin, you have no idea how blue the sky was today. And I just give a glimpse of the top of the prison wall. And to, so that you know that it's a prison wall, I add some barbed wire in there because you've got to have a visual metaphor that makes it obvious for people. Now, she has a little garden. She's saying, usually before the evening lock up, I go out for another short half hour to my little flower beds to water them and to walk around in my garden just, just a bit more. Um, I don't want to make her garden too beautiful because it's still got to look like a prison. But I do know that she planted a lilac tree because we have a photograph of it. So I put these lilacs in, and but I keep the rest of the garden fairly plain. She's standing there with her watering can. And what I've done, which I do quite often in the book, is I've moved from a far shot to a panning shot and into a close-up in the way that a film would do, which is, I've never done this before. <laughs> it was fun having this space and the opportunity to be able to zoom in on someone. And as she's looking up in the... Um, as the sun was still hot, but one gladly allowed its slanted rays to burn on one's neck and cheeks like a kiss. And I really want to show the face of an older woman who's got a certain amount of experience 
way showing in her eyes because obviously that's something that you don't get to do very much. This is the first time we've seen Rosa with short hair. She's chopped all her hair off from the front cover and she's um, she seems sort of young and old at the same time here. And she looks up and you can see the, the follow of her gaze is this um, scene with the swallows and it's just a beautiful piece of writing. And it was really fun for me to illustrate because I've lived in a farmyard, just by quite by chance, I've lived in a farmyard in Somerset where swallows do precisely this and it's spectacular to watch. The swallows had already begun their every evening's flight in full company strength and with their sharp pointy wings snipped the blue silk of space into little bits, shot back and forth, overtaking one another with shrill cries and disappearing into the dizzying heights. And it's just such a lovely thing to be able to draw. And it looks absolutely fantastic on the page and really conveys Rose's gift for empathy, mm. for identifying with other living creatures and the whole world. Her politics were not in any way narrow in the sense that we now think of the word economics. They were really a cry for freedom and the swallows, the way the two sides of the page mirror each other, Rose are looking up and the swallows being what she sees, um, convey that so fabulously did you know she sw- she fed wasps in prison i didn't they moved her to another prison where she didn't have a garden anymore so she got some jam well there can't have been a great deal of jam about in in 1918 in in um in germany but she got some jam and left it in a little plate so that wasps could come in and, and feed that's extraordinary i know that's bonkers isn't it <laughs> who likes wasps Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> who doesn't want to read the whole book now to discover the wasp feeding, cat loving, <laughs> Leo Yogisha dumping marvel that was Rosa Luxemburg? Um, thanks so much, Kate. That is has been absolutely fantastic. Don't forget that there will also be a competition on the Verso website to enable you to win not only a copy of Red Rosa, but because you'll want to read more of her extraordinary writing, a copy of Verso's Letters of Rosa Luxemburg and a tote bag so that you can carry them around and tell people, hey, I'm reading Rosa Luxemburg and so should you. So the competition will be posted on the website and you can, of course, pick the book up from the London Review Bookshop. And you might also want to check out Kate's website at www.cartoonkate.co.uk and particularly check out Threads, which is her most recent work, a cartoon project about the time that she spent in Calais with the refugee community. This is a fundraising project and there's full details on the website for how you can get involved. So we thought we might end with a line from Rosa to fire you up. Oh, well, that's an obvious one. She's writing to Leo Yorkish's. I want to affect people like a clap of thunder, to inflame their minds with the breadth of my vision, the strength of my conviction and the power of my expression. Amazing. Happy International Working Women's Day from Kate Evans and myself, from Verso Books and from the London Review Bookshop. <laughs>